0: Well, I thought this morning that we would talk a bit about the temple. Now, let me start with a show of hands. Who has ever heard a sermon just about the temple before? One or two. Interesting. Well, by the end of the morning, you will either be saying, I can't believe no one's ever talked about the temple before, or now I know why no one's ever talked about the temple before. But the reason that we're going to talk about the temple is because of something that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 when he's writing a pastoral letter to the church in a place called Corinth. And he says this Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? Now, based upon the number of people who've never heard a sermon about it, apparently not. No, Paul, it seems that most of us didn't realize. He's writing to the church and he's saying, you, as the church, are to have the characteristics that make you not just like a temple, but so that you are a temple. It wasn't just uh, Paul, the Apostle Peter talked about the church in those terms as well. He said, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple, And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. I want you to quickly notice two things here. The first is that neither of them says you're all little individual temples. They both say that you are one temple. So we only have the characteristics of his temple together. And the second is that you're being built into it. To be part of this temple, you need to be cemented in. You need to be joined together with other living stones. So what do we know about temples? If you Google temples in Aylesbury, the first result is top ten Hindu temples in Aylesbury. Which is great, except if you uh, click on the link, there are no Hindu temples in Aylesbury. The second result is top ten Buddhist temples in Aylesbury, but there aren't any Buddhist temples in Aylesbury either. And then the next result is the Temple Street wine bar, which I can recommend, but not because it's got anything to do with a temple. So really, we're not that familiar with temples nowadays, are we? We probably know that there was a temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, Um, It's in some of the stories, but that's probably about it. But you know, one of the really interesting things about the temple is that it features all the way through the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, pretty much from cover to cover. It features at the beginning of Genesis, the very first book, and at the end of Revelation, the very last book. And the reason that it features in those places is is because there is no temple in Genesis or Revelation. So there's a little riddle for you. How can the temple be important in Genesis and Revelation when there is no temple in Genesis and Revelation? All will be revealed a little bit later. So the very first mention of the temple is in the second book of the Bible, the one straight after Genesis, which is called Exodus. And just a very quick recap, um, you'll recall how everything started to go wrong with our relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. When in the pictorial language of Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve as our first parents decide to do their own thing and go their own way and reject the place of God in their lives. And God's plan to rescue his creation starts with a man and a woman called Abraham and Sarah and then a family-centred community that will become a nation and later be called Israel. And God says that they will be his people and that he'll have a very special and personal and intimate relationship with them. Not just so that each person can be in relationship with God individually, but also so that the world will be able to see what it looks like for a group of ordinary people to be in a relationship with the living God together. So the world can see what faith looks like when it's lived out there, not just lived in here. Because people want to see how faith changes, not just our beliefs, but whether we live differently and love differently and behave differently with each other as a consequence of those beliefs. Whether God in here does or doesn't make any difference out there. And that, of course, is exactly what God calls us to be and to do as his church. So a personal faith, yes. An individualistic faith, no. But this family, this nation, ends up enslaved by the great superpower of the day, which was Egypt. But God hears their cries, and he sends a man called Moses... And God rescues them with signs and wonders, including the parting of the Red Sea. So there they are in the wilderness. They've left Egypt and they're on a journey to the land that God has promised them. And God gives them the Ten Commandments and the various other instructions as to how they should live as his people. And then straight after that, the very next thing that happens is this in Exodus 25. God says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. Have them build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And then the next six chapters are taken up with God's very detailed instructions as to exactly how this tabernacle should be built and what it should look like. And the reason that it's called a tabernacle at this point is because it's a portable temple. Remember that they were on a journey and they lived in tents. So obviously the temple had to be a tent as well so that it was portable. And then it was King Solomon, David's son, who was the one who built the first permanent temple in Jerusalem about a thousand years BC. That was destroyed by the Babylonians about 600 years later. And then it was rebuilt, first by Zerubbabel and then by King Herod. So at the time of Jesus, this rebuilt temple was fully functioning in all of its splendor and its glory. And it's during this time, after the resurrected Jesus has returned to his Father in Heaven, that the Apostle Paul writes these words to the church. Don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God? God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. You're not just like a temple, you're called to be the temple. So let me explain why the temple is so special throughout the Bible. Why it's at the centre of the story, pretty much from cover to cover. And then we'll end with how it can be that the temple is so important in Genesis and Revelation when there is no temple in Genesis or Revelation. So I want to look at five key features of the temple five key aspects of what the temple was and what it meant that would have been obvious to Paul's audience and Peter's audience when they said, you are God's temple. Because when they said that, they were building on what everyone already knew about the temple in Jerusalem. So unlike us, they would get it straight away. They wouldn't need it explaining to them as we do. So the first thing about the temple was that it was the place of the presence of God. The place where God was to be found. It was the place to experience God, for God and people to meet. In fact, another name given to the tabernacle was the tent of meeting. The place where heaven and earth came together. Now of course there is a sense in which God is everywhere. Even King Solomon said in 2 Chronicles 2.6, no one can really build a temple for God because even the vastness of heaven can't contain him. But scripture makes clear that God has decided to be in the temple in a special kind of way. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. And we see the exact same idea in the New Testament as well in the continuation of the verse that we read at the beginning don't you realise that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you and the you here is plural it's all of you, plural who are the temple, singular you aren't lots of little individual temples because being God's temple is not an individual thing You know, in the modern world, we tend to individualise just about everything automatically, don't we? Because our worlds tend to be centred on us as individuals. So we automatically assume that whenever the Bible says you, it's speaking about me and to me personally. But you in the Bible is almost always you, plural. There's only one place where Paul talks about being a temple as an individual thing. And that's in 1 Corinthians 6.19, when he says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Plural. And that's because he's talking about sexual behaviour, which is obviously an individual thing. So it's in the church, as God's temple, when we all come together like this that we can expect the Holy Spirit to be coming and dwelling with us in a special way, a way that is far more than the way in which God is simply everywhere. When we invite the Holy Spirit together, he's here in a more powerful way than he is with us individually. I think that's why our prayers are more effective and why we encounter his presence more powerfully. And that's why we need to prioritise church and being together as church and being physically joined to the church. Not just listening to podcasts, reading Christian books or watching God TV instead. The second thing about the temple is that it was the place of worship. And the first thing and the second thing are intertwined because worship is all about intimacy with God. Worship is all about encountering the presence of God. It's not just singing songs while we're looking around the room and thinking about lunch or what time the match kicks off or whatever else it is that we may be thinking about or allowing to distract us. When we come together as his temple, we're coming into the dwelling place of God and the presence of God to do business with God. So how do we make sure that we are doing intimacy and not just singing songs? Well, one thing is, can I recommend that we close our eyes? Because we really can't do intimacy with our eyes open, being distracted. That's why in the vineyard, when we're worshipping, we close our eyes. And when we're praying for someone in a ministry time, we open our eyes so that we can see what God is doing. Now the temple was made up of several areas uh, which allowed different levels of access from the outer courts to the inner courts to different groups of people. Beyond a certain point only priests were allowed to go and beyond that was what they called the most holy place or the holy of holies which was the space right in the centre where the very presence of God was. Only the high priest was allowed in there and even then he was only allowed in once a year. And that area was separated by a curtain to make sure that nobody went in by mistake because it wasn't allowed. So there was only a certain closeness that ordinary people could get to the presence of God. Exodus 26 says the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. But with the coming of Jesus, that curtain that separated us has been removed. The moment that Jesus died on the cross was the moment that that curtain was torn in two. And what that means is giving us unrestricted access into the Holy of Holies, the very centre of the most intimate and powerful presence of God. Not just the high priest, not just once a year, but all of us on every day of every year. Thanks to Jesus. The book of Hebrews and the New Testament says that Jesus is our great high priest who not only entered into the most holy place himself, but brings us with him. Ephesians 2.18 says it's through him that we have access to the Father by the Spirit. The third thing about the temple is that it was the place of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, worship was sacrifice and sacrifice was worship. There was no worship without sacrifice. So it was costly to be a worshipper. And I think it's worth asking ourselves sometimes, is my worship costing me anything? Is being joined to the temple costing me anything? Hebrews also tells us that Jesus came into this world as our great high priest not only to make a sacrifice for us but to actually be that sacrifice, the perfect and final and ultimate sacrifice. And if you've heard that before, you may have thought, well, that's great. Jesus has done all the sacrificing for me. He's done it all. I don't need to sacrifice anything. I can just sit back and enjoy it but you know that, that's a, a misunderstanding because we as his temple are still a place of sacrifice it's not that there is no sacrifice it's just that our sacrifices no longer have any relationship to our salvation we don't make sacrifices to make us right before God because you see otherwise what Jesus said in Luke 9 would make no sense at all Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So we are called to live sacrificial lives in the same way that Jesus lived a sacrificial life. And nor would what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 make any sense. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up what? Spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And nor would what Paul says in Romans 12 make any sense either. Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. Do you see here how Paul brings worship and sacrifice together? And the difference between worship and sacrifice in the original temple and worship and sacrifice for us today as the spiritual temple is that they made dead sacrifices. But we're called to be living sacrifices. So worship is costly. Discipleship is costly. God is not just interested in whether we say we'll die for him but whether we say that we'll live for him. True and proper worship is not just singing songs that have doctrinally correct words. It's being a living sacrifice in every area of our lives, every aspect of our lives, that's holy and pleasing to God. And you know, each time that we are sacrificing for the king and his kingdom, we're worshipping. The fourth thing about the temple is that it was the place of the priest's. And the priests basically had two roles. Uh, one was to serve the Lord by running the temple. So they were like the professionals. And the other was to be intermediaries between God and the people. And all of the priests came from one tribe, which was the Levites. So not everyone could be a priest. Only certain special people. Only they could do the stuff the ministering to people everyone else was just a passenger on along for the ride but now in the spiritual temple that's all turned on its head in revelation 1 6 it says jesus has made us a kingdom of priests for god his father everyone in the kingdom is now a priest not just one tribe functioning as priests a select group of special people Now everyone gets to play in vineyard speak. Not just the pastors and the professionals, the people on the stage. We're all intermediaries between God and people. Everyone is involved. None of us is just a passenger in the kingdom. We're all priests. So we don't differentiate between special people who supposedly have the anointing and ordinary people who don't. Because that's human thinking rather than God's thinking. We can all minister to people equally effectively, whoever we are. Even the children, as they did last week in the kids' takeover services, with exactly the same results. Because the anointing is not ours. It's not something we possess. It's not something that certain individuals possess. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in chapter 4 of his letter to the church at Ephesus as as part of what it means to be this temple, which he's talked about in chapter 2. And he says this, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love possibly the longest sentence that you've ever heard but notice a couple of things here if you would one is that to grow up as Christians means to get involved, getting joined to people because the church is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies not just by what some joints supply So it's not just the proper working of Stephen Lynn or the staff team. It's the proper working of everybody which means every single one of us. So the distinction between the professionals and the amateurs has gone. So we need to ask ourselves individually what does the proper working of my part look like? What should I be doing to serve? Because we're all priests it means that we're all on staff we are a kingdom of priests in the kingdom and then do you see at the end here it it says it's the proper working of each individual part that causes two things to happen one is the growth of the body and the other is the building up of itself in love so it's not me and lynn who make those things happen the body grows itself by building itself up in love according to the proper working of each individual part. So it's what each of us does that decides and determines whether the church is growing or not and loving or not. And then last but not least, the fifth thing about the temple was that it was the place of the storehouse. I wonder whether you knew that The name we use for our compassion ministries here comes from a similar function that they had in the temple. And it was to support the work of the temple, specifically including the storehouse, that God told Israel to give their tithes and their offerings. So tithing isn't obsolete unless we think that the temple is obsolete. There are dozens of verses that talk about it in the Bible, but here's just a couple of them. Nehemiah 10 We promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees. We agree to give God our oldest sons and the firstborn of all our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. We will present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit and the best of our new wine and olive oil. And we promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all our rural towns. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. Do you notice here how it says that it's the best of It's the best of, not the leftovers. Notice how it's a tenth of everything that is the fruit of our labours. And notice how it's to go to the temple through the priests, not just everyone deciding for themselves what they're going to give the tithe to. And then Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the refugees and the immigrants, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so that they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And this is the background to the most famous verse about tithing and the temple. Malachi 3.10, one you may have come across. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Do you see there's a connection here between our faithfulness in bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse and his blessing us? And do you see how... God calls the storehouse my house. Giving is the only context in scripture that I'm aware of where we're not only invited to test the Lord, we are told to test the Lord. Every other context, we're told not to test the Lord. But God says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So let's uh, close with uh, that little riddle I left you with earlier. How can the temple be so important in Genesis and Revelation when there is no temple in Genesis and Revelation? And the reason that there was no temple in Genesis is, is because the whole creation was designed as a temple where God would dwell with us as his people. With the Garden of Eden as the most holy place, the holy of holies, where Adam and Eve met with God in intimate relationship. Uh, We don't have time to go through them all, but Bible scholars have pointed out the various different ways in which the construction of the creation matches and parallels the construction of the temple and the tabernacle. It's just a few quick, easy examples. The seven days of creation correspond to the seven days of the consecration of the tabernacle. In Leviticus, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people, just as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The construction of the temple takes seven years, and the seventh year is a Sabbath. And the dedication of the temple took seven days. And the reason there's no temple in Revelation, why the writer John specifically says in Revelation 21 that I saw no temple in the new heavens and the new earth is because the creation has been remade and restored to what it was always designed to be in Genesis, a place where God would dwell with his people with unrestricted access to the presence of God. There's no temple because the new creation is all a temple, just like in Genesis. The original creation was all a temple. And that is actually what we mean when we talk about heaven, that new creation where everybody who wants to be included can be included through Jesus and enjoy intimate relationship with God forever. So let me ask Mike to come back if he's around somewhere. And uh, yes, there he is. Thanks, Mike. And let's have one last quick look at the verses that we started with. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? I'd like us to ask ourselves are we experiencing? Are we involved? in everything that it means to be the temple of God together. Because a Christian isn't just someone who comes to Christ in a relationship with him in which the church is peripheral. We're coming to the Christ who's the living cornerstone of a living temple in which the church, in his mind, is integral. To be joined to Christ means allowing God to build you into that temple to cement you into his church. So I'd like us to ask ourselves this question In what ways are we joined to the church here? Because, you know, being joined the way that bricks in a wall are joined has a sense of permanence and commitment about it, doesn't it? Keeping our options open and being joined are mutually exclusive. So, in what ways? Are you joined right now? Are you in a connect group? Are you joined financially? Are you serving in a team on Sundays? And so on. These were the characteristics of that physical temple, the way that God designed it. So these are the characteristics that God intends for his spiritual temple too. That each of us is called to be a part of. These are the things that the first Christians would have had in mind, five things that would have been obvious to them when Paul said this is what it means to be the church. We're a place of God's presence because everything else flows from that. We experience God's presence in a unique and powerful way when we come together. We're a place of worship. Are you experiencing God in worship? Are you engaging with God in worship? Is it time perhaps to take your worship to a new level? We're a place of sacrifice. You might like to ask yourself what is it costing you to be part of this temple? Time? Money? Freedom of choice? We're a place of priests. We are all called to minister and to serve in the kingdom because that's the fruit of what it means to serve the Lord and we're a place for storehouse not everyone is able to physically serve in storehouse but maybe you can maybe you could give up a week or a few days of the holidays this summer to serve in our holiday club or to help make lunch for needy families Or if you can't do that, maybe you can give financially to help pay the cost of us doing more for those in need as the demand for those services continues to grow. So I wonder where you feel you are at in being joined to his temple this morning.